Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It's been more than 50 years since Congress passed a bill that began to reform mental health care in our nation. Under President John F. Kennedy, grants were awarded to build community mental health centers after advocates called for more community services and deinstitutionalization. Another law would require Medicare to cover mental health treatment. Years later, advocates and policymakers are still trying to improve how millions of Americans are treated for mental illness. Today, where we live, we're exploring whether a new law could improve that access. It's called the Mental Health Reform Act. It was signed into law right before the holidays. Coming up, we'll hear from local advocates about how the law could help Connecticut residents with mental illness and substance abuse disorders. And later, we shift topics to our region's aging population. WNPR's John Dankosky will join us to talk about a new series from his New England News Collaborative that looks at the role of immigrants in changing the region's demographics. But first, Liz Sabo joins us. Now, she's senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and she'll tell us more about the Mental Health Reform Act. Do you have questions about how the federal law could help you? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So start off by giving us a little bit of a background on on where the idea for this law came from and and the work that led to its passage. Liz, can you hear me? Nope. Well, it looks like uh, Liz can't hear us, so hopefully we'll uh, get her back on the line. But we are going to be hearing from mental advocates coming up in in just a few minutes. Um, As you know, after the shootings uh, in Newtown uh, a few years ago, there was a lot of of an urging uh, from policymakers to change how we um, access um, mental health treatment, not only in our state. Uh, We know that Senator Chris Murphy... Chris Murphy uh, led that um, effort. And let's see if Liz Sabo is back on the line. Liz, can you hear me now? Hi. Yeah. Okay. So the first question I have for you is to give us an update on how we got to this point, this Mental Health Reform Act. Sure. Well, this bill really grew out of uh, a congressman's response to to the Newtown shootings. Um, Congressman Tim Murphy of Pennsylvania um, was really concerned that, that at least part of that shooting was due to untreated mental mental illness. So he actually introduced a law in uh, a bill in the House of Representatives three years ago. And then uh, Senator uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut um, introduced very similar legislation in the Senate. And then there was also some mental health legislation from Senator Cornyn of Texas. And all three of those bills were wrapped up into one package and then they were included in the massive 21st Century Cures Act, which passed Congress in December. Um, that's a $6.3 billion uh, program. But a lot of people were really excited about this mental health legislation as well. So give us some bullet points. What are some big takeaways of what this Reform Act is calling for? Sure. Well, this, this act doesn't include a lot of money, unfortunately. It authorizes a number of programs, but Congress will have to come back and actually 
appropriate the money. Um, but what it's looking to do is to bring a lot more science and medical evidence to the mental health field. Um, a lot of people think mental health is is a hopeless is a hopeless case, but there's actually a, a lot of evidence for some really good programs that really work, but they just never get used. So this program, uh, this bill, would appoint a new assistant secretary for mental health and substance use to look at programs, figure out which ones are working, and really help disseminate them and coordinate care across the federal government. Um, there's a lot of mental health work being done in the federal government. There are 112 programs, but they're spread out among eight federal agencies who often don't talk to each other. So this new bill would try to coordinate what we're already doing and then find out what's working and do more of it. Now, Liz, you said something I wanted to go back to about um, there's a lot of science behind, um, you know, successfully treating uh, mental health and substance abuse disorders. But um, you mentioned that they haven't been used. Why is that? You know, it's it's a lack of coordination um, and, and a lack of priority in, in some cases. People um, in states, I know when uh, state when states like Connecticut or, or other places in the country are looking to cut funding, they, they often cut mental health programs first. And what happens is the prevention programs, the everyday care that keeps people healthy ends up being cut. And then people end up getting so sick that they may end up needing to be hospitalized, they may end up being homeless or even being arrested and in jail. So we tend to spend an enormous amount of money on the back end treating the consequences of, of um, untreated mental illness, but for, for whatever reasons, um, these really good programs often just haven't gotten disseminated. Um, one program that's authorized in the new bill is called Assertive Community Treatment, and it's a, a team approach that really assigns a whole team of people looking at every aspect of a person's life, their, their housing, their education, their employment, and gives them 24-hour access to care and, and to this team to make getting mental health care a little less daunting. Instead of taking someone who's already sick and throwing them into a confusing mental health system, assertive, assertive community treatment, which, has, which was pioneered 40 years ago, puts this whole team of really great experts around that person to try to keep them well. Um, so this program would authorize more of that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about the recent the recent law that was put into effect in December. It's the Mental Health Reform Act. Uh, Liz Sabo is on the phone with us. She's senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Um, if you have a question about the federal law, 860-275-7266. You know, I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about the early intervention efforts, Liz. Um, can we um, find out a little bit more about, you know, some of the programs that are working for, say, children who are, you know, uh, exhibiting symptoms of mental illness and, and why they have fallen through the cracks through the years. Yeah. Well, what's, what's really interesting um, uh, about this bill is that it, it will force states, it will require states to use 10% of their federal block grants for um, what I called in my story early intervention um, for people who are suffering their first round of psychosis. Psychosis often um, is slow to develop but then it appears maybe suddenly in, in the late teens or early 20s. And without treatment, um, psychosis not only leads people to have delusions or suffer hallucinations, but it actually causes brain damage. Um, it damages the brain almost a little bit like dementia, and it makes hard for people to function um, just writing a, a check or getting on the right bus to get to the doctor's office, paying their rent. And um, really, really um, landmark 
studies from the National Institute of Health have found that, again, if, if they get a, a team approach and they intervene early, the first time that someone has psychosis, to engage them and their family members and educate them about their illness, what they need to do to stay healthy, get them medication, get them counseling, help them stay in school, stay in a job, that there can be really dramatic improvements and they can prevent this terrible lifelong slide that ends up often in in homelessness. And uh, there's so much enthusiasm for this kind of early intervention that um, there's really almost no disagreement in the mental health community that it needs to be funded. And now states will be required to dedicate 10% of their block grants just to that program. Uh, This new law also um, looks at parity. Can you describe what that means and why it hasn't been enforced in the past? Yeah. Well, Congress passed uh, a really important bill in 2008 that would require private health plans to provide equal coverage for mental health and physical health. And it took many years for the federal government to actually put out the regulations to get that going. But unfortunately, a lot of insurance companies are still putting up a lot of roadblocks for mental, for mental health that they're not putting up for physical health. So this bill would also try to give parity a, a push and make sure that people with mental illness are able to get the same kind of treatment as they would if they had diabetes or or heart disease or cancer. And there's an enforcement part of this as well. So if an insurer is not doing that, um, the federal government will come down hard on them? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, And and people say that's just uh, an incredibly incredibly important provision because people with mental health who need, people with mental health problems who need to be hospitalized or to need to see a doctor often um, are being rejected by their insurance companies. So this bill would, would help with the enforcement and would help make sure that people really do get equal access to care. Now, I have to ask, Liz, you know, this, there's a lot of, of good stuff in this new federal law, but, you know, at the same time, uh, we have leaders in Congress that are looking to repeal um, the Affordable Care Act. And how does that all play into um, how people that are suffering from mental illness and substance abuse can actually access treatment if they don't have the insurance to do so? Well, that's, that's a great question because about 25% of uh, mental health care spending is actually provided um, through programs such as Medicaid. So the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare was a huge boon, a lot of people say, to people who have mental illness because it allowed them to get coverage for it the first time, um, not only because uh, they might have gotten uh, insurance through Obamacare, but because of the Medicaid expansion in so many of the states. Now, a lot of Democrats, including um, New Jersey's Frank Pallone, are saying that if, if Obamacare is repealed and if that Medicaid expansion goes away, a lot of people with mental illness could suddenly lose coverage after finally getting it for the first time. So they're really concerned that as great as this bill sounds, that its benefits could become sort of a moot point if so many people lose coverage. I've been speaking with uh, Liz Sabo, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. You can read her stories at khn.org. Liz, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we'll get perspective from local residents with mental illness and advocates about this new federal law. Do you think the Mental Health Reform Act could help you or a family member with a mental health or substance abuse issue? We want to hear from you. That number, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a new federal law that aims to reform mental health care in our nation. The American Psychiatric Association says more than 20% of the U.S. population has experienced a psychiatric or substance abuse disorder in the past year. That's 68 million Americans. The Mental Health Reform Act is part of a larger health care package with a goal to better coordinate how mental health care is delivered. Do you think this new law can make a real difference to you or a family member? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So what do mental health advocates think about the new law? Well, joining me now in studio is Daniela Giordano. She's public policy director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Connecticut. Daniela, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. Also on the phone with me now is Kathy Flaherty, Executive Director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Kathy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy, for having me again. And I understand you're down in Florida, so you're you're, you're missing out on these cold temperatures up here. We're a little envious. <laughs> I can't tell you how sad I am to not be there in Connecticut with you this morning. <laughs> well, just remember, you have to return soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. You're right. So to get back to um, the show um, topic today, I'll start with Daniela first. So um, we wanted to talk about the Mental Health Reform Act because it was signed into law right before the holidays, and I think it was kind of off people's radar, unless you work um, with uh, with uh, um, the mentally ill people suffering from substance abuse issues. So, uh, Daniela, first off, you know, what do you think about the Mental Health Reform Act? What are some good things that are coming out of this that are going to help clients that NAMI may represent? So we are very supportive of um, Senator Murphy, who really from the very beginning or even before he was working on this federal bill um, has always been close to his community, even when he was a state senator and state house member here in Connecticut. And for him to be able to really pull something together that has bipartisan support in this much more contentious Congress that we have known over the last few years, um, I think was really um, was really uh, recommend, uh, commendable. And um, he really did listen to, he, he held a number of roundtables uh, in the beginning of the stages of putting this bill together throughout the process and even at the end um, in terms of giving people an update. And so one of the things that we've been working on intensely for the last several years at NAMI and also with our colleagues, including Kathy and other um, self-advocates, is really the parity piece. Because um, we do, um, the people that we um, that we support and that we, that we work with, which are both individuals with mental health conditions as well as family members and community groups, um, a lot of them deal with having um, private insurance and not being able to get access to services as they would get to other services because we have this artificially divided system of something one system for physical health and the other system for mental health substance use and then another system for dental and vision. I mean, we have such a split healthcare system that mental health and substance use issues have always been like a stepchild, I think, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to to private insurance. And I really, um, I think, like the reporter from Kaiser Health News noted in the in the first segment, that in 2008 there was a federal parity law, and we actually in Connecticut and other states there's also been um, subsequent state laws that are improving parity provisions and getting more data on things. But we know that the implementation is lacking from what it's supposed to be, and that there needs to be really more enforcement. So I think the the sections in the law that are um, pointing out on the parity piece are giving more teeth to parity and really the enforcement of such because we do know that when it comes to things that are not ide- easily identified, like having to go through jumping more, through more hoops like prior authorization, that there is a huge um, 
uh, discrepancy between when somebody's looking for physical care versus for mental health or substance use care. And our Office of Healthcare Advocate has been collecting data on this for several years and can show that they get more complaints um, on those pieces than they get when it comes to, to physical coverage. Um, when we talk about that um, data, is it when families are looking for treatment for a loved one, when someone who is experiencing a mental health disorder is trying to get treatment and they're getting denied? It's basically both. And and so ideally, it's the individual who's able to, to look for coverage and services for themselves. But sometimes when a person really, because this we call it a healthcare system, but from my point of view, it's not really a system because a system would actually imply that things are coordinated <laughs> and that things are easily identified and easily gotten. Um, but just for the sake of today, we're going to call it a system. But the mental health care system and the healthcare system is not set up, I don't think, to really be consumer and customer friendly. And that's true in mental health just as much, as I think, as in physical health. I have not read my own health care policy that I have through my husband's employer. But I can tell you that I wouldn't be able to understand it. I don't know. Maybe Kathy, as a lawyer, would be <laughs> be able to better do this. But it's really not meant to be that. And so in, in mental health, you get another layer of not getting intensely coverage, really in an, an intentional way, I think, from the insurance companies. Well, let's turn to Kathy Flaherty, again, Executive Director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Now, Kathy, you've been on the show before. Um, you're very open about um, being diagnosed, I believe, with bipolar disorder um, in your 20s. And tell me what your thoughts are on the Mental Health Reform Act. I, as a lawyer for people who live with mental health conditions and somebody who lives with a diagnosis myself, I think what I especially appreciated was the fact uh, that Senator Murphy here in Connecticut really listened to our perspective. Um, I think as this federal mental health reform has evolved over the last three, four years, um, the House bill came from a very definite perspective of what Congressman Murphy thought um, the system should look like and what the system needed. There are a number of us who have lived through that system, received services through the system, who had a very different perspective of the things that would help us and other people who have uh, survived the interventions of the mental health system. And as we pushed that part of things, I think the Senate bill really listened to that. And the language in the final bill really reflects a lot more of the Senate bill where you're looking at things like parity, where you do treat mental health and physical health um, equally. When you look at things like HIPAA and compassionate communication with family members, for many, if not most of us, our family members are a huge support to us as we live with these conditions. But for some people, family's part of the problem. And a bill that would have automatically made all kinds of disclosures just for people living with a mental health diagnosis when you don't treat people with a physical health diagnosis the same way, really would have driven people away from systems of care. Um, so, so, Kathy, just to explain to our listeners, so a, an, an earlier version of this uh, this law that's now been signed by President Obama would have uh, allowed those disclosures to happen, but advocates had said this would not be a good thing for uh, people that have been diagnosed with uh, or looking for mental health care treatment. That's correct. And I think the other big provision that was very problematic, especially as an attorney who represents people with mental health conditions, were the protect, uh, provisions about the protection and advocacy for the individuals with mental illness program. Because people have to remember that lawyers and advocates who work for PAMI programs are, first of all, lawyers. And we have rules of professional conduct that we're required to follow. And some of the proposals would have actually required lawyers who work for PAMI programs to do what people's family members wanted to do, 
We don't do that for any other clients in any other system. We represent our clients. And that's what people fundamentally misunderstand um, about the roles that people play within the system um, and the reason why we so zealously advocate for what our clients tell us they want is because that's what we're obligated to do professionally. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm speaking with Kathy Flaherty, Executive Director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project, Incorporated, and in, in studio, Daniela Giordano, Public Policy Director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, here in Connecticut. Now, we're talking today about the new Mental Health Reform Act. You know, how effective will it be? What are some of the provisions that will help uh, many Americans? And we've heard more than 20 percent that will be um, diagnosed or will seek psychiatric or substance abuse uh, treatment in, in the next year. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to take a, a question um, from a listener now. Uh, Paula's calling from Manchester. Paula, what's your question? Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having this on your show today. It's, I have a half question, half comment. Um, I, I have a child that has a, um, an illness that we thought was, um, was, um, was a mental illness and turned out to be a physical illness causing the mental illness. Once the physical illness was taken care of, there were no more mental issues, and she's gone on to be, you know, a, a an honors college student with internships and doing tremendously well. Um, so my my comment and kind of question is, what is being done to help find out what are these for for people that may have an underlying physical reason that's causing the mental health issues. What is being done to help them? Uh, because in my experience, it's not, it's not been a lot. Insurance um, did not and still does not want to pay for the diagnosis um, of, to try to find out what the underlying issue was, even when a doctor felt that it was very important. And then certain treatments that would have worked quite well for her quickly rather than having it take years um, were denied by insurance. Um, so it just seems to me that um, from what I understand, before mental health, condition should even be diagnosed. There's supposed to be a thorough physical examination and all sorts of tests. And in my experience, um, and I have two children actually with this condition, uh, which is highly genetic, um, in my experience, that ha- that's not done. They're just thrown on drugs that don't really work for them. And it just seems to me that if, you know, with the amount of research that's out there about, for, in- in, uh, for instance, um, how tied in inflammation is with depression and how so many autoimmune diseases have mental health aspects that go uh, undiagnosed because the person just looks like they're psychotic, like my daughter did. Um, And then medicines don't work, obviously, because it's not the right diagnosis. Um, It just seems to me that we can avoid a lot of the issues that come up Mm -hmm. um, and all of these acts and bills and um, legislation if we actually were just trying to get these people better. Well, Paula, thank you. In a more broad-based way. Well, thank you for letting us know a little bit about uh, your backstory and your question. I'll have our guests uh, uh, take a stab at that. I'll start with Daniela. I really appreciate your question, Paula. I think this actually points to a really big issue, both for children and adults. And I, I think I alluded that a little bit in the very beginning, that we separate. In our country, we separate. We talk about a mental health care system, maybe a substance use system. Maybe they're kind of working together. Maybe they're not. And then there's the physical health care system. And then, like I said, the, the other things in the head, like the vision and the dental, they're not really included in anything in terms of insurance coverage and the way we think about things either. And I think you really speak to a good point about 
Of course, again, like we are human beings. Our entire well-being is based on, on numerous factors, and they really go, and I, I usually include like three, like the physical, the mental, and the spiritual wellness. And if we actually thought of it that way, and if we actually set up a healthcare system that way, mm-hmm. I think things would be a lot better for everybody and more comprehensive, but also honestly, probably less costly because we've separated them so artificially um, that I, I, I'm unfortunately not surprised. I haven't heard it with children, but I hear it from adults, unfortunately, more in the line of, for example, when somebody comes into a doctor's office or maybe even an emergency room with a physical complaint, but they happen to have a record of mental health conditions or taking some medications that are usually prescribed for mental health conditions. I have heard over and over that this individual was not taken seriously for their physical concerns. They were actually being treated like, oh, this is just a sign of your mental illness. And this is absolutely unacceptable in terms of our healthcare system, and including, honestly, people who are in the healthcare system, I don't think, who get enough education, really, if you go in as a medical provider, you don't really get the education on the on the mental and the emotional well-being of, of us as human beings. I think the bill does a little bit in, in that regard of trying to integrate mental health and and physical health. Again, like, they are integrated. We just don't treat them that way in our system, but by nature they are. And to actually be more specific about that, for example, people can go and um, get a physical appointment as well as mental health appointment in the same day with the same provider. Mm. Um, So that is really an issue that I'm not surprised to hear, but it's something that absolutely needs to be addressed. And before we take another call, uh, Kathy Flaherty, you know, what have you experienced? And is this something that um, is a problem for clients that you represent? Um, I would say it absolutely is. And I do appreciate hearing from a parent of a younger child who said, look, ultimately, the problem that my child was dealing with was a physical underlying condition. I think, unfortunately, our system is too driven to easy solutions. And when we see something, we're like, oh, it's that. Let me label it as that. Let me treat it as that and not take the time um, to explore other things underlying conditions that may really be the real cause of what's going on. And I think that the big challenge is, is ultimately so much of the system is driven by how we pay for the services in the system. And I I think the mom hit it on the head. Paula hit it on the head. The insurance company doesn't want to pay for the differential diagnosis. They want to pay for the interventions and the treatment. So if it looks like a mental health condition, let's just treat it as a mental health condition and medicate it as opposed to let's take some more time, take a step back, look at the bigger picture, find out what's really going on, and is there another intervention that we might use more successfully. I want to take another call. Chris has been holding from Mystic. Chris, you're on the show. Hello. Yes, Chris, go ahead, please. Hi. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to um, I want to say thank you because I really love your show, first of all, and I listen to it every day. Thanks. Um, I'm, a, I'm a solo practicing primary care nurse practitioner in Mystic. You know, and I think the interconnectedness between mental health and physical health is very important. Um, I'd have to disagree with one of the uh, previous callers. I think anybody who goes into healthcare, we look for the root causes of issues. And I think when you talk about mental health, you do try to find the organic, if there's any organic reason, any physical ailments, uh, you know, that would be causing you to have mental health symptoms. Um, but the insurance companies, I mean, primarily, they're paying for prevention. They're only paying for preventive services. So uh, most commercial insurances, you get a free physical exam, um, and that's about it. So I think we're going to see the insurance companies pushing individuals to be bigger stakeholders in their care, causing them to pay for more of their care. 
Uh, and I see this every day that people want genetic testing. They want these things done that you know the insurance companies aren't going to pay for. And there may be value in that. But as a provider, we have to, uh, you know, educate patients that this may be good data, but they're going to have to pay for it. Um, is it right? I mean, you know, we could argue about that. But uh, the costs are really, they're, they're going up. And the insurance companies aren't going to pay for these and we're going to have to pay for them. Um, but the real reason I called was um, I, I think providers, most people who go into healthcare, they want to figure out the root cause of the problem. And it's not as simple as just throwing medications at things. We all know that. And if you've seen somebody who just wants to throw medicine at you, then you probably should just see somebody else. All right, Chris, thank you so much uh, for your comment. You know, I think it might be a good time to, to bring in uh, to this conversation uh, the people that um, have been insured under the Affordable Care Act. And now that we're talking about, um, we're seeing that there are leaders in Congress looking to repeal ACA. What does that mean? for? I mean, I think a, a good percentage of people that have a, a mental health or substance abuse disorder have been able to get treatment because of the Affordable Care Act. Danielle, what do you think is going to happen? I think I can speak for not just myself, for but a lot of other advocates, including self-advocates that I get to work with every day and that I have the privilege to work with, that we're all really, really concerned about this because it, it's not that the – I think the, the Kaiser Health reporter um, pointed a little bit to the Medicaid expansion, but mm-hmm. even before that, um, that the Affordable Care Act, one of the provisions, as most people probably know um, – did away with um, pre-existing conditions being a barrier to actually getting access to health care, whether it's individual, mostly individual plans and individual policies. And if that were to be, I think there have been some conversations, we're not going to take that away, but if you dismantle parts of the Affordable Care Act, I'm not the expert on this thousand-page document, but I can imagine something that's so complex and complicated and interrelated that if you take a few pieces away from it, major pieces around funding, that the other pieces are going to be able to stand by itself. And really the pre-existing conditions is such a – and I have to say I'm, I'm also coming in here with a little bit of a bias. I grew up in Germany with a very different system, and I didn't pay that much attention um, at uh, about the system because I was 19 when I came here. But I do remember not ever having to worry about whether I could go to see my doctor, to see my pulmonologist because I've had asthma, to see my eye doctor, to see my, my um, OBGYN. Those were just things people did because everybody had access to, to coverage and services. But the kind of concerns that we have here in our country about people staying with jobs that, that may not be the perfect for their situation, but because they have maybe decent employer coverage for health insurance, like all these things that people have to consider in order to have quality of life in, in our um, country. And that is something that is, is I can't imagine how this not would not go backwards with repeal of the Affordable Care Act and not really having something that we can actually look at as a replacement. Um, so I think anybody who... Anybody who is a human being should be concerned about it, but especially people who have health conditions already or when they develop something or when they have an accident and something happens. Traumatic brain injury, for example, is something that you don't plan for, Mm -hmm. just like you don't plan for mental health or substance use issues. But it's something that's going to impact every single one of us in one way or another, I believe. Now, Kathy, I wanted to turn to you. You know, your thoughts on a possible repeal of ACA and and the people that you represent through the Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Um, Really, uh, many of us who um, work with clients who um, get are covered under the ACA by virtue of Medicaid expansion, as happened in Connecticut and a whole bunch of other states, we have a really co- 
huge concern because there is talk of block granting Medicaid to the states, which will give the state a certain sum of money. And if that's all the state's going to get, there's no question that in order to make that budget balance, there will, there will be cuts to services. Um, I think for people who, um, even if you're in an employer-based health plan, the fact that you can cover your adult children until they're the age of 26 if that goes away. Although then you hear talk, oh, well, we want to keep that part. Oh, we do want to keep the part where people with pre-existing conditions get covered. I'm one of those people who had a break in insurance coverage. Um, be, after I graduated from school, I did not have full-time employment. I was one of those 27% of people who had no insurance because even when I got a job that had coverage, they excluded coverage for my pre-existing condition for the first three months I had the job. So it putting people back and keeping the things that we like it in um, the ACA, that's the stuff that costs money. Um, if you don't keep the other side of things where you mandate people to get coverage and you keep in the subsidies, that the whole system is going to fall apart. I think the fact that so much of it could potentially fall apart means on the one hand it's going to be a lot harder to unwind. On the other hand, they've had seven years to come up with a substitute plan, and they still don't have one. So it, I think it, there will be a lot of things in flux. And then add to that, um, you know, Connecticut's continuing uh, budget deficits. How is that impacting services for those with mental health and substance abuse disorders? Uh, Daniela? Right. So we do have – it's not just a double whammy. I think there's probably three or four of them. But just between, right, the, the federal um, – movements on health care reform and our state budget um, that continues to be in precarious situation. And I do believe that a lot of people who are working on the state budgets, whether that's the the administration or the legislature, and obviously we as advocates really having those two entities as the audience for what we um, ask them to do or not to cut, for example, that they're in a really difficult situation. And this is the second year of a really big budget deficit. And we know in terms of what's considered discretionary versus non-discretionary funding that all the things that we care about and that make actually life, either quality of life or just allow people to live in the community in an in integrated manner are all on the discretionary side. So those are all the things that are always on the chopping block. And I think even if people wanted to in the state legislature and the administration, if the repeal of the Affordable Care Act comes down and the Medicaid expansion in a way crumbles, the state doesn't have the money right now to, to put up the monies that um, are coming into the state through the Medicaid expansion, the, the matching dollars, uh, which is, I think, even still uh, close to 95%. We don't have the money to make that up. So the people that were covered that are really low income um, that don't have access to affordable health care, even through the exchanges, because they can't afford the premiums and the deductibles and other out-of-pocket pays, they again will end up uninsured, which again is going to not just impact them and their um, human quality of life and their wellness, but it's going to impact the state because people are going to end up in ERs when they can't take of their care of their health earlier on, or they're going to end up in hospitals. And just one hospitalization, one ER uh, visit is going to uh, wipe out the kind of savings, quote unquote, that we would have gotten by not people having access to preventative and early intervention care. Before we get to one last caller, I wanted to just, uh, Kathy, read you a tweet we're getting from a, a listener who writes that Governor Malloy is planning a 5 to 10 percent cut to mental health addiction services. You know, how concerned are you, Kathy? Um, we are very concerned. Uh, the agent, Every state agency was told uh, to prepare a budget with a 10 percent cut in it. Um, and I know the commissioner's office and her executive team are working hard at DEMAS to 
figure out how to achieve that 10% savings without doing things like a very simple across-the-board cut. Um, and looking at, I think, like Liz even mentioned, there are programs that work. I think the real challenge that has happened here in Connecticut is when we do have these innovative pilot programs that we show are really effective, like things like the community care teams, they never can be brought to scale because this constant pressure of the budget um, and needing to make it balanced means we don't have the resources available for it. My agency is an agency that depends very significantly on funding from grants from the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. So yeah, 10% budget cut is going to, if, if that was applied equally to us, we lose 10% of our funding, we're going to lose staff, which means we're going to be providing fewer services to our clients who need us. And so for people to think that, oh, we can't, we have to make this budget balance and only look at the services side of the equation rather than exploring looking at revenue because a budget is always two sides. It's the money going out and the money coming in. You can't, we're not going to be able to cut our way out of this. I just wanted to point out to our listeners that Governor Malloy will be coming on the show this Friday, so we'll be sure to ask him about um, some of those cuts uh, that might be slated. I'll take a quick call now. Robert's been holding from Greenwich. Robert, what's your comment or question? Uh, yes, good morning. Thank you for having su- such a wonderful segment on your show. Uh, my my um, comment is that uh, society, um, with such an emphasis on individuality and uh, independence, uh, where families are mobile and very often separated, um, I mean, either through employers, you know, moving people around or people needing to move around, um, and in an area where drugs have pervaded society, and also people needing to be at work longer to make ends meet, it's impacted the amount of care that families can provide to the individuals and their family. Also, things like, you know, putting um, where families get separated uh, in their older years um, through, you know, either going to a an elder care facility or something like that. Uh, but groups like Pathways in Greenwich are indispensable today. They provide services to families that um, that come from heaven. I mean, the, the love and care that is so crucial to, you know, kids growing up. Um, they... Um, they, the counseling services, the, the uh, services provided, helping individuals and, and uh, uh, people who are uh, recipients of help, you know, advice on how to get in touch with a doctor. Uh, um, and I, you know, I, I, uh, I applaud these groups and and, uh, and wonder how there can be more groups like Pathways you know, in different places. All right, Robert, we're almost out of time, but we get your point. Community services are really important to help families and individuals in need. So thank you so much for your comment. Um, Before we go, um, just some last thoughts on the Mental Health Reform Act, Daniela. A lot of good things in here, but as we heard from the Kaiser Health News reporter, uh, the funding is not a guarantee. Funding is obviously is always a concern, both on the state, the federal level, and on the local level. And it's something that I think we have to continue fighting for 
because it is the right thing to do and it's the smart and the cost efficient and effective thing to do in terms of investing in early intervention prevention. And I do want to think something that we didn't talk about, maybe we can do another show about this, but the community-based services, when we think about it, it's not just the direct health care services. It's the social determinant services, whether it's um, supported housing, whether it's affordable housing, whether that is supported education and supported employment, the kind of things that we don't think about when we think healthcare all of the time, but again, it increases people's quality of life that we need to really pay more attention to in our in our state, in our country. Thank you so much to Daniela Giordano, Public Policy Director for National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, here in Connecticut. We'll definitely need to uh, dedicate another show uh, on this topic in the future. Thanks for your time. Also, Kathy Flaherty, Executive Director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project, Incorporated. Thank you for joining us again, Kathy. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Now, coming up, we check in with the New England News Collaborative and its reporting project called Facing Change. Executive Editor WMPR's John Dankosky joins us right after this break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, millions of people around the world are displaced from their homes by war and poverty. On the next Where We Live, we hear from two Connecticut artists who have personal experience with the global refugee crisis. That's coming up Tuesday. Now, the refugee crisis gets a lot of attention worldwide, and illegal immigration is often discussed here in the U.S., but immigration is a multilayered and complex topic. How's immigration impacting our region? Joining me now is WNPR's John Dankosky, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of the show next. John, welcome back. Thanks, Lucy. Good to be here. So this Facing Change uh, series rolled out, I think, before the holiday. Tell us what brought you here. Well, this is really a foundational idea that's behind the New England News Collaborative. When you talk about immigration or refugees, we often talk about things like illegal, illegal immigration. We start to talk about national politics. But there's a demographic shift that's been happening in New England for a very, very long time. And it goes something like this. If you just look at the demographics of our region, we have six of the oldest states in the nation. I think it's one through four and then 11 and 13. So that's pretty old. Then we're some of the least fertile states. We have the six lowest birth rates. We're gaining uh, age and we're losing population faster than just about any place else. So even if you don't want to get into the conversation about immigration and its place in America today, there's a demographic necessity that says that if we didn't have immigrants coming in, we wouldn't have the young workers necessary. So that's what we started looking at. And we started looking at the challenges and opportunities provided by having an immigrant influx here. I imagine that the approach is different depending on the state. What's great about your collaborative is you're hearing from reporters throughout New England. What did you find? Well, we found some interesting things. So, for instance, uh, uh, I'll talk about Maine in just a moment because there's a complex uh, question about immigration in Maine. But we went to, to Kensington, New Hampshire, and we talked with uh, Becky Rule. She's the principal of an elementary school there. And it's just a, a little bit of a, a window into what it's like in some towns. So when I started three years ago, there were two third grade teachers, two fourth grade teachers, two fifth grade teachers. Um, and over the last few years, we've lost a third grade teacher, lost a fourth grade teacher. And last year, we lost a fifth grade teacher. So what she's talking about is a school that essentially has no students in it anymore. So that's a little bit of a problem. Now, the state of New Hampshire, on one hand, 
isn't really looking very closely at immigration as uh, a savior for some of their problems. Right next door in Maine, it's really complicated. So Maine has a governor, Paul LePage, who we've talked about in the oh, past, <laughs> who, who is, is, I mean, very strident in some of his views. Uh, he's a Donald Trump supporter and has been very uh, hardline against immigration. But meanwhile, there are companies like the one that we interviewed uh, that's a manufacturer that's bringing in lots and lots of immigrants, including refugees, and none other than the main chamber of commerce usually a pretty conservative paragon in most states, uh, they're saying, look, we've got to get immigrants here because Maine is so old, so white, we don't have enough young workers coming in, we need an influx of people or else we're not going to be able to survive economically. What's the climate like in Maine? Um, If you have a governor that says, we don't want immigrants here, you have a a business community that says, well, actually, we need this workforce here. I mean, is it very welcoming to immigrants who choose to come there? Well, I think depending on who you talk to, uh, yes and no, right? Politically, a lot of people say that this is a place that wouldn't be very welcoming. Uh, Donald Trump won the second congressional district there, which is essentially the the big heart of Maine, everything north of, of the Portland area. And that's because a lot of people have lost their jobs there. The economy in Maine is not really good once you get up into the northern part. But a lot of people in the rest of the state and in the rest of the region, honestly, are looking at numbers like the ones we're looking at that that show that first-generation immigrants, true, it's going to cost more to bring people in from, from elsewhere. There's more social services. You need to get people up to snuff as far as finding job skills and getting English language training. But then overwhelmingly, the second generation immigrants, the kids of those people who come here the first time, actually are a net positive to the region. They're putting more back in in terms of tax revenue than the first generation, and they're putting more back into tax revenue than the median American. Think about that. So this influx of immigrants is something that's playing out in a place like Maine where they're just making, if nothing else, economic argument. It's not just saying we think it's good to bring in refugees. They're saying we need refugees or else we're not going to be able to survive. And we hear often that when immigrants come, well, they're doing the jobs that uh, other other Americans don't want to do. But one of the reports that you had uh, looked at an industry where you have a lot of immigrant workers. Yeah, home health care aides, people who work in nursing homes, anybody who is at all familiar with that uh, industry understands that an awful lot of the people who do that work, they come from elsewhere. A lot of people from the West Indies here in our region. We talk to people from Nepal and Ethiopia. Um, Let's listen to Barry Bluestone. He's a professor of public policy at Northeastern University talking to us about this trend. In Massachusetts, we project we're going to need about 93,000 additional home care workers over the next 10 years, or almost 10,000 a year. And what I fear is if the current and if political environment either shuts off immigration or potential immigrants look at the United States and say this is not a very comfortable or safe place to be, I don't have any idea how we're going to fill those 10,000 jobs each year. Yeah, and these are economists, Lucy, who are basically saying if we don't have an immigrant workforce taking care of this aging population, we won't have anybody to take care of this aging population, and that's another demographic crisis. You know, we again we talk a lot about refugees. There's interesting approaches to welcoming refugees throughout New England. What'd you find in, in Vermont? Well, in Rutland, Vermont, here's a city that kind of embodies all of the demographic trends we're talking about. It's a small city. The manufacturing past sixteen thousand people. It's very old and very white, and they don't have enough young workers to keep the the, the city afloat. The state's governor, Peter Shumlin, a a while ago raised his hand and said, we want to welcome in refugees. And now the mayor of Rutland, Christopher Loris, said the same thing. If they're going to come to Vermont, let let them come here. 
my response, people who say Rutland's not ready for this type of thing is, then when and how has this been working out for us? Not too well. Our population is continuing to decline and we need an infusion of new blood and new culture. So what's happened here, Lucy, is the town is rallying behind this effort. Everything from you know, people lining up to help feed and clothe people, get the refugees ready. They're going to start coming uh, this month. Arabic lessons are happening at the local church. We even talked to a guy who came back to his hometown who had Arabic skills because he wanted to teach it. Um, yeah, there's some pushback. And some of the pushback is the stuff that we'd hear anywhere in America, right? We're concerned about outsiders. We're concerned about security. But... The, the pushback that I think made the most sense to us was some people say there's a lot of money flowing in now. What happens in five years when there's not so much interest from the volunteer community? Who's going to take care of all these people? Let me go back to that study I cited earlier. The second generation, they might be putting more into the Rutland economy than they're taking out. This again, our stories from the Facing Change series from the New England News Collaborative. What do you have coming up? Well, we're going to be doing this series over the course of the next couple months because there's a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about Muslim political influence uh, across the region, and it's growing, it's, especially in a lot of small and mid-sized cities. We've got a story coming up on what might happen with the Trump administration on F-1 visas. Some of the students who come in from around the world and fill very important jobs in laboratories If that work dries up, a lot of universities are going to be out of luck. And we're also going to look closely at the K-12 education system system and how we're preparing the young people who are coming here who need ESL training. Do we have the resources necessary to actually take in all these refugees and people from around the the world? Sounds like a lot of important stories that that we need to hear. Thank you so much to John Dankosky, again, again, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. If you missed those four stories, where can they go, John? Well, you can go to our website, nenc.news, and you can listen and for more of this coming up on Next, which is on Thursdays at 2 here on WNPR. Thanks, John, so much. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Again, you can check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.